Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Hey, Health Connect South Radio listeners, it's C.W. Hall, your host, and this week we had the distinct pleasure of getting to sit down with longtime friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Helen Gelly of Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia. We talked about the treatment modality that is hyperbaric oxygen therapy, how it's widely available in the Atlanta area, and yet there are patients that could greatly benefit from access to it who never get to know it's even here. So coming up next, Helen's going to explain to us how she transitioned from being an ER physician to learning about hyperbaric medicine, what it does for patients, and she quickly saw that this was a good career choice for her. Check it out. When someone hadn't gotten better from a chronic bone infection for five years, and then they added hyperbaric therapy to the other conventional therapies, and all at once this resolved. Or patients who hadn't healed a wound for years had 40 hyperbaric treatments, and all at once the wound was healed, was to me graphic evidence that they had potential for healing. The use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy to help people heal their wounds and heal infections and heal delayed effects of radiation has really made the career shift that I did a very worthwhile. Be sure to stick around. The full interview is coming right up. Good morning, everyone. It's your host here on Health Connect South Radio, C.W. Hall. Joined in studio, as always, by co-host Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group. Great to be here. We're very pleased to have them be a part of the show. In fact, the reason why we're able to put this show on, thanks to you and Sherwick. You've been having a kind of a challenging few days. We won't have to go into it, but dang, glad to have you here. Nice smiling <laughs> in spite of everything. It's been a little challenging, yes. Well, I'm certainly glad to have you here. And of course, in keeping with the mission of Health Connect South, which is to increase the health and wellness state of our population around the Atlanta area through greater awareness of the health assets that we have access to. Of course, today is going to be no different. I get to sit down with friend and colleague of several years about a topic that I've also become quite passionate about myself. That is is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And this evidence-based treatment modality is available at just about every major hospital inside the perimeter of Atlanta and even well out into the suburbs around Atlanta. You can receive hospital-based or accredited freestanding program delivered hyperbaric medicine in Cumming, Rome, Jasper, Conyers, and numerous others all around the Atlanta area to the benefit of patients with diabetes who have wounds that are threatening amputation for their lower extremities, which ultimately comes with a very high mortality rate for some of those patients, as well as for cancer survivors who've had to have some radiation therapy as part of their cure. And now they're dealing with what's called late effects of radiation that while they are a survivor and maybe their cancer is gone, now they suffer on a daily basis from symptoms that come from late effects of radiation. 
radiation that are causing them trouble. And what we're trying to do today is illuminate a little bit about this particular treatment modality, some of the evidence behind it, talk a little bit about what it does, who needs it, and when it might make sense for a physician to talk to you or a loved one about it. So I'm um, very pleased to have Helen Gelly, who is certainly an internationally known expert on the subject of hyperbaric medicine, taking time out of her busy day to join us here in the studio. So thanks so much, Helen. Glad to have you here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> now, hyperbaric medicine, that's, that's not the weight loss surgery we're talking about. No, but if you're in a chamber for two hours and don't eat, probably. Oh, you could lose a, a little weight that way. Just, it just burns, not as much it burns, as you it burns a, you, a few calories, yeah. is that what you're saying? And so, so we making making light of it basically because we get that a lot of, and that's our challenge basically with, that we're facing here is that both on the physician side, and in the community itself where the patients are, there's a great gap in knowledge and awareness of this treatment modality one, and that it's available, two that it's evidence supported, uh, to the to the fact that last I counted, 30 medical schools out of 159 offer hyperbaric medicine as a specialty that's trained there. 16 have fellowships, unless those have changed here recently. But those were the last numbers I had seen. And so that means that a lot of the physicians who graduate from a well-respected medical college and go into their chosen specialty know very little of anything about this particular treatment modality. And you couple that with on the patient side of things, they have no idea. They, they don't get really exposed to it at all if it's, unless it's anecdotal kind of information at best. So, uh, well, that's... and I think most of us have heard about it just from the iron lung experience. So yeah. I think that's what, you know, when you're walking on the street and you would ask somebody what it is, they either think it's the weight loss surgery or iron lung type of treatment. Yeah. Some people have heard about athletes, for example, some of the pro athletes who buy the, uh, the soft-sided, mild hyperbaric uh, treatment chambers that were designed to help altitude sickness for mountain climbers uh, to be able to treat that and, and uh, get them back safely. Uh, and, and they're trying to apply the, the modality or that version of it anyway to try to get, achieve some measure of either increased he healing of uh, injuries in the sports world. And then there's other applications that people are trying to find out if it would work. But we're not focused on those. We're focused more on the uh, areas of medicine that are very widely supported by evidence now. And, and so that's what I wanted to get into. But before we talk too heavily about hyperbaric medicine, can you take me through kind of your background? You, you've been in medicine for a while now. You started out in ER medicine. So talk about kind of your story and how you transitioned to subspecialize into hyperbaric medicine. Well, when I finished my training at Emory in one of the first emergency medicine um, departments in the country, I was um, on the faculty um, as clinical adjunct faculty, and they had um, a need to get um, a number of, pay of uh, physicians trained to take a hyperbaric medicine call, and I was sort of volunteered. <laughs> and of the, it's a of meeting. The, Is that a meeting you missed? Yeah. Or? No, I forgot to step back. Yeah, everybody Every, else stepped everyone, back. Uh, everyone else stepped back. And um, I took the course, an introductory course, and I thought that the slides that were being presented, the cases that were being presented, just when someone hadn't gotten better from a chronic bone infection for five years, and then they added hyperbaric therapy to the other conventional therapies, and all at once this resolved, 
or patients who hadn't healed a wound for years had 40 hyperbaric treatments and all at once the wound was healed was, to me, graphic evidence that they had potential for healing. The use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy to help people heal their wounds and heal infections and heal delayed effects of radiation has really made the career shift that I did a very worthwhile and, and, and very gratifying because I think we have a great impact on the quality of life of patients. And once you got into the specialty and began to learn about it, as you described, you, you really dove in because now you actually sit on the education committee for the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medicine Society, which for this particular modality specialty is kind of like our joint commission, if you will. They're the, the group that um, they review all the literature that's published and uh, determine whether or not there's enough evidence to support given treatments and things like that. Well, parts of the committee do write the indications report. Um, I'm not on that part of the committee. However, the UHMS, the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society, uh, was brought together a number of experts both in the diving and hyperbaric medicine field to evaluate the appropriateness of hyperbaric therapy for certain indications. And so there is scientific evidence that's uh, accumulated, reviewed, and then published oh, every perhaps three years to keep everything up to date. And new indications have been added um, as we've gone on. Um, for example, a sudden hearing loss is the newest uh, UHMS-approved indication. Those patients who experience sudden hearing loss uh, that are not responding to conventional therapy, which is usually steroids, adding hyperbaric therapy actually <coughs> improves their recovery of hearing. And we sometimes minimize what the impact of someone's life would be like without being able to hear very well. But, for example, we're currently treating someone yeah, who's the last an, audi mm -hmm. he's an audio engineer. Yeah. And if he can't hear, he can't work. work. Yeah, he was very stressed out. I got to speak for him. Um, and so let's kind of talk about the, the, the physiology of what it's doing, because many people that are familiar with the treatment believe that somehow you're absorbing it through the skin. Because as you were talking about, a lot of the application is dealing with wounds. And, and before we do that, just I think it would actually be really helpful to almost cast a historical perspective on, you know, it's almost like who was the first person to eat like a, a prickly pear? Yeah. Um, but historically, <laughs> how did they actually discover that this was actually any good for anything? So just kind of walk me through that. Well, it's very interesting, actually, that even in the mid-1600s, um, British and French uh, scientists were exploring the effects of pressure on gases. And uh, Boyle described um, what happens to um, gases then when they're put in a vacuum. So it's the actual opposite of hyperbaric therapy. And gases get larger... Um, under uh, hypobaric conditions. And then in the mid-1800s, um, they were doing surgeries in hyperbaric chambers. They were hyperbaric air, but they were uh, chambers that were put under pressure. And a number of uh, surgeons found that their results were better, that they had better outcomes if they operated in this hyperbaric 
chamber room. But I think the tipping point really came um, when diving medicine, uh, which started with um, underwater exploration, but, but even before that, when in the late 1800s, when um, we started building bridges and tunnels, right. we were using what the French called caissons, and they were large buildings that were uh, supporting the um, piers or the towers that were being built for the bridges and tunneling underground. And what was happening, these people who were working in the caissons were coming up. They were down about 100 to 150 feet, and they were coming up after work with what we now know is the bends, decompression illness. And now, weren't they pressurizing the environment to keep water out, or was it well, just the it water was, pressure that was exerting? It was the pressure. They were large open uh, containers. But if you go down 100 feet, you're still under 100 feet worth of pressure. And one of the um, physicians who was working um, noticed that they got better when they went back down and worse when they came back up and started um, stopping them halfway <clears throat> and allowing them to what we now know is offload nitrogen. And he reduced the mortality rate by almost 90%. And so time, you know, observation and time, uh, the Japanese were treating um, smoke inhalation patients that had carbon monoxide poisoning with hyperbaric oxygen and noticed that their burns healed faster. And so that started the p sort of scientific inquiry to de determine what applications hyperbaric therapy could have. And so a lot of folks think it's a new treatment uh, an emerging treatment, but it's really more emerging awareness more than anything because the modality's been around. And as you talked about, now for a number of decades at least, we've been doing some extensive studies on a variety of illnesses and, and potential disease states that possibly benefit. And where we were uh, before we kind of got into the history of it is was getting to what is it doing? We're not, you know, you talked about the gas, uh, the effects on gases, and that's kind of where it starts to do its thing is because it's not necessarily that we're essentially putting lots of oxygen against a, a wound because it's on the surface. We're, we're bringing, th bringing it through the lungs. So kind of talk about what it's doing when you go into a chamber um, and we're delivering oxygen under pressure. Well, when you take a gas and put it under pressure, the concept is much like bottling Coca-Cola. So when they bottle any kind of soda, they put carbon dioxide over the surface of the liquid and they put it under pressure. And what happens is that the liquid um, absorbs or the gas is dissolved into the liquid and you can put proportionally more gas into that liquid depending on how high the pressure is. We all know that when we open a can of soda, all the gas bubbles come out of solution. And we also know that if we do it suddenly, there's a big burst of gas bubbles. But if we just crack it open, over time you'll get a flat soda. Mm -hmm. And all that gas will have dissolved out of the solution, come into a gas, formation, gas form. However, because the pressure has been very slowly decreased, it doesn't come out in a visual way, the way if you open up a can of Coke 
rapidly. Mm -hmm. So that concept of using a gas over a liquid is what hyperbaric medicine uses. So we breathe oxygen and it interfaces in the lungs with the plasma or water part of the blood. And when you go under pressure, for example, 30 or 45 feet underwater, the equivalent of 45 feet underwater, the amount of gas, oxygen, which is dissolved in the plasma actually allows the body to function without the presence of red blood cells. So the normal way we carry oxygen in our bodies is through the red blood cells. But under pressure, in a 100% oxygen environment, the amount of oxygen that, that is dissolved in the plasma is sufficient to support life. And so we use this mechanism of inhaled gas to increase the concentration of oxygen that's available to body parts that are not getting adequate oxygenation or enough oxygen to heal, for example. So the requirements for oxygen are much higher if you have to heal than if you are just tooling along in your normal life. I see. And so we're talking with hyperbaric medicine specialist, Dr. Helen Gelly, who's been providing this kind of care in the Atlanta area for roughly 20 some years now, and is certainly involved in the process of educating P physicians that are looking to learn how to provide this kind of care. And real quickly, I was just going to touch on the environment that we're going into to begin yeah, with, to give it, somebody an idea. Like? We, um, I mean, there, do I have to stick if I have hearing loss? Am I sticking my head yeah, that attached to everything else going yeah. with you. Um, basically, there's two, t two different types of chambers, and that's what they are. They're uh, an airtight chamber, if you can imagine a, a submarine, if you will, the, the ones that can hold multiple people at one time plus a, a caregiver in there with them. That's called a multi-place chamber. They look, and, and for all practical purposes, are like an experimental submarine. They're designed to withstand great amounts of pressure. Um, and in those... In, in, environments, the patients go in, the, the pressure comes from room air, like we're breathing here, and then the patients actually wear a soft hood that is air sealed uh, so that they can breathe pure oxygen that way, or they might deliver it through a mask like you see a jet fighter uh, pilot use. Uh, so in the multi-place, it's pressurized with air so that our tender that's in there with them can not have to be dealing with high levels of O2. Um, then in the single person chambers, those kind of look like some folks, if they've been around for long enough, they might have known somebody that was in a, in a polo cha uh, polio chamber, yeah, for example, know. a clear-sided. It's uh, you know, basically a smaller version of that that's uh, made for one person. We can ha handle very, very large people in those chambers, but a single person goes into those. You slide inside, they close the chamber. It's, it's you know, it's sealed, and then in that chamber, it's pressurized, and you're breathing pure O2 in the environment itself. The side is clear. Um, you can see out, and when the patient's inside, there's a person sitting there with them, a provider that's watching them and can communicate with them through a handset. Um, they can speak to each other and hear each other, and then, of course, the patients watch television while they're So in. if I'm listening and have a propensity for claustrophobia, yeah. so how do, you, how do you deal with that? That, that that's, a common, that's a common thing, a number of patients. Not everybody, but I would say, I don't know, 10 15% of the people. I think claustrophobia is highly overrated. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, the chambers are relatively large, yeah. and they're acrylic, so they're clear, and... There are some people who are truly claustrophobic, who can't get in an elevator or come up um, in any kind of small enclosed space. But if you've had an MRI or you can get in an elevator, most 
most people with a little bit of encouragement and perhaps an anti-anxiety medication can make it through the two-hour treatment. I think it's just a matter of approach in many yeah. times. And so has the technology changed a lot since the 1800s? No. That's the interesting thing is that uh, while the, the metals and things like that, they may look pretty and snazzy, but, uh, but by and large, they really have been delivering the care outside of making them larger. Some of the early ones were pretty close, and it would, I would imagine, be a lot harder for more people to go in them. But nowadays, like I say, the, like Helen was describing, they're as big as 42 inches in diameter for the single-person chamber. Right. And that's large. It's a very big space when you're in there. It's very comfortable. You can recline with your head up, and it's like a... You know, patient cart. Do you have TV? Are there TVs in there? You yep. can watch t- you can watch TV. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, each one of them has, a t- has its own monitor. Yeah, if you could set up like a nail salon. You it's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Get your nails done. And toes <laughs> no, done unfortunately not. Yeah. And so as we were talking about um, what it's doing physiologically, you mentioned the fact that when we go into this environment, it begins to get pressurized and we're breathing oxygen in this case. Our bloodstream, um, the liquid portion, is now becoming supersaturated with oxygen. And, it, and from what I understand, it begins to act like a drug at that point. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll kind of go into why, say, this group and that group both benefit. Well, oxygen under pressure acts as a drug and changes the uh, way certain cells in the body interact with each other. The primary mechanism for wound healing is the the body uses fibroblasts, uh, cells that manufacture collagen, which forms the infrastructure for wound healing. And fibroblasts require oxygen as one of the building blocks because collagen is linked together by oxygen molecules. And if you don't have enough oxygen, then you don't form good collagen And if you don't form good collagen, you have a hard time healing. So hyperbaric oxygen provides a source of oxygen for fibroblasts to make collagen. For white blood cells, um, which are used by the body to kill infection, to kill bacteria, which also require oxygen. They make superoxide radicals. You need oxygen to make those radicals become more efficient in killing bacteria, so that helps with controlling um, infection. But also, the uh, body requires more oxygen when it's healing because the energy that is needed for white blood cells to engulf and destroy bacteria is also oxygen dependent. Mm -hmm. So those are the things where oxygen is a fuel source helps the body to build and to take care of infection. But when you put um, a patient in a hyperbaric environment and you elevate the amount of oxygen that is um, in their bodies, under pressure, there are other effects. And one of the effects that it has is that it reduces the reperfusion, ischemia reperfusion injury that occurs in so many things that we do today. So, for example, our bodies are expecting that if you have a clot that forms, that the body's reaction was to form that clot in order to allow the the organism to survive. Keep it from bleeding to death. Keep it from bleeding to death. But when the clots form in arteries in the heart, for example, or arteries in the brain, we now give 
drugs that dissolve those clots. Quickly. Quickly. And the body's not accustomed to that. And so what happens is that you have ischemia, the lack of blood flow, and then when you re- remove that obstruction, you, then you have something called a reperfusion injury. So after the blood flow is reestablished, the presence of oxygen is actually detrimental to those tissues. The body recognizes that the clot is gone and it thinks it's going to start bleeding again. And so its mechanism for dealing with that is to produce substances that cause vasoconstriction or narrowing of blood vessels in order to diminish the likelihood of exsanguination. Mm -hmm. Hyperbaric oxygen under pressure actually attenuates or reduces that reperfusion injury by working on the white blood cells and the interaction that they have with the lining of the blood vessels to stop the formation of these vasoactive substances that cause vasoconstriction. And that's important for our patients, not only the ones that are um, getting clot busters for heart attacks or for strokes, but more commonly in, for example, breast reconstruction. So flaps, when the plastic surgeon takes tissue from one part of the body and moves it to another, there's an inherent lack of circulation during that transfer. And when it's re-implanted in the place where it will hopefully finally reside, when they reattach that blood flow, the reperfusion injury occurs. And so hyperbaric therapy has been very effective in working to reduce the effect of this reperfusion injury. And when you were talking about athletes, that's actually why they're trying to use hyperbaric therapy in acute sports injuries, because you have a disruption of blood flow from the injury, and then the uh, swelling starts to go down, blood flow is reestablished, and the detrimental effects then start. So if you can put them in a hyperbaric chamber early enough, you can actually attenuate or reduce the effects of this reperfusion injury, and that's why so many of the sports teams are using them in the training room. And, and it, one of the other effects that, that relates to the way the white cells interact or the, uh, the receptors interact is due to the inflammatory cascade, too, as part of that as well. So it kind of reduces that part of that process as well. Correct. That's part of the reperfusion injury yeah. is... Stickiness. Stickiness yeah. and the um, anti-inflammatory effect. So that's, I think, one of the things that um, many of our physician colleagues in the community don't necessarily see. I, I, I know that one of the confounding factors is that one of the big groups that we can help are diabetics, for example, that have a a limb-threatening wound. Another group that has a lot of patients in need are folks who've had radiation uh, in the past, and now they're having some trouble in that field related to their radiation therapy. And then we talked earlier about hearing loss. So here's all these different people with really seemingly little in relation to them, and yet we're saying this one single modality can help them. But there ends up being some overlap in in some ways between them because if you look at the diabetic, for example, they've had high levels of glucose in their bloodstream that's damaged the nerve endings and damaged their 
the linings of their vascular system to make it less, it it's, becomes occluded, it becomes sticky as we talked about, and, and so the blood cells have a hard time delivering oxygen through them, so the tissue becomes low in oxygen levels, hypoxic. Well, I think the common denominator yeah. in all of these is a lack of oxygen. Due to one reason Due to or one another. reason or another. In the diabetic patient, because of the diabetes, because of the high levels of sugar that have been in the bloodstream for a prolonged period of time. They have um, damaged the inside part of their blood vessels, both the tiny blood vessels and the larger blood vessels. And they also have um, coated their red blood cells uh, to an extent to make them less pliable or less able to get through tiny blood vessels. And they also have problems with white blood cells being able to be as effective in killing bacteria as a normal non-diabetic person would, um, their white blood cells would be much more efficient. And so that's why diabetics have higher propensity for infection and why they have a higher incidence of vascular complications leading to potentially uh, limb amputation. What hyperbaric therapy does in the case of the diabetic is that it allows those white blood cells to have more fuel, more oxygen, to do a better job of killing the bacteria and controlling infection. And it also allows for oxygen to be transported by the plasma rather than by the red blood cell. So we can get through a place that's... Into areas oh, okay. yeah. that are um, not as well perfused and to allow those fibroblasts, the little engines that make collagen, to do a better job of making collagen, which then allows the body to heal. Is there any risk involved in, in this treatment? Well, there are always risks. Um, the most common risk has to do with the changes in pressure, mostly in the ears and the sinuses. And of course, in Atlanta, with our great pollen, pop <laughs> pollen and allergy problem, uh, that maybe as high as 15 or 20 percent, but we can uh, deal with that with uh, medications, with slower pressure changes. The other uh, complications um, have to do with gas changes in your lungs. For example, if you have a longtime smoker with a lot of scarring and you have a rapid change in pressure, the potential is you could um, have a collapsed lung, which is very, very uncommon. And Oxygen toxicity is also uh, present uh, in the brain. Some um, patients have a higher uh, irritability to high concentrations of oxygen. Uh, so we try to diminish the exposure uh, into segments that are uh, punctuated by air. And so we try to reduce the risk of oxygen toxicity. And are there any um, conditions that are not a candidate to be helped by this treatment? Oh, there are plenty of conditions that are not uh, candidates for hyperbaric I mean, because you all just kind of went through most of the chronic illnesses, so I was just wondering if there's <laughs> chronic illnesses that have to stay away from this type of treatment. Well, I, obviously someone who has um, cr uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease with, uh, who is a COPD. CO2, CO2 retain, retainer, someone who's sensitive to the amount of oxygen, putting them in a high oxygen environment probably wouldn't be a good thing. But it's more that we're learning um, as time goes on what other applications hyperbaric therapy can give. 
I mean, obviously, uh, we can't fix gastric ulcers and we can't fix um, patients who have um, high blood pressure, for example. So chronic diseases in and of themselves are not an indication for hyperbaric therapy. But in those chronic conditions where the body has to do some type of healing, the potential is there for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You know, it's surprising that this has actually this treatment hasn't caught on in the anti-aging um, crowd. I think that, that that is being taken advantage of by the folks that do the bags, uh, the the mild yeah. hyperbaric medicine folks. They they want you to go in there to feel better and for you know for feeling more lively and vigorous. But uh, but in reality, it. It's not, we, it's not been shown to do any of those things. That's really more of a... I mean, you look awfully uh, young. Is that the reason? Yeah, I don't get in the chambers, though. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the, and one of the things that I talked about earlier was uh, the, the other large group that I know myself I'm very passionate about just because they're, they seem to be, at least in our community, kind of on the last frontier as far as access to the treatment. Um, and one of the things about Atlanta is that it is kind of unique compared to many of the communities around the country. There's, I don't know how many there are now. There may be more. The last I heard was roughly 650 or 700 programs, uh, hyperbaric medicine programs uh, around the country. So that's not very many when you consider the thousands of hospitals there are out there. Yet in Atlanta, almost every major hospital inside the perimeter has it. Only one or two does not. Um, and you know, and even those, they have one very nearby them. Uh, and you can go to Jasper, Georgia, Rome, Conyers, Union City, Noonan. I mean, even the smaller communities out in the outlying areas of this large metro area have access to this evidence-proven treatment modality. And the challenge is, going back to what I, I said in the intro, was so few physicians graduate having had a good exposure to it because as, as we've kind of gone into these patients that that do receive benefit, they tend to be a small wedge of the overall population. So if you look at the diabetic group that Helen was talking about a minute ago, I don't know, what would you say? Maybe a fourth of them, possibly a third of them end up being what we would consider a good candidate to receive the therapy because conventional efforts will heal those wounds in many of the others. But so we're talking about a wedge of patients out of the ones that end up having this condition. And then when you look at radiation injury, for example, late effects of radiation, not the, the ones that you can deal with right after you get your radiation treatment. But if you look at the prostate cancer population, for example, that receive radiation, we know, um, I was talking to a radiation oncologist about a large study in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at uh, 1,200 men, interviewed them and their partners about the problems they were having related to sexual function, urinary function, bowel function after having had radiation treatment for prostate cancer, and wanted to know to what it to what extent do you have problems that interrupt your daily life in these areas? And for the men who were having complaints around their urinary function, they either had to go frequently, urgently, it hurt. Or incontinence. Bleeding, yeah. um, passing clots, for example, from the bladder wall. Two to four percent of them reported moderate to severe problems. But nine percent reported problems as related to bowel function, rectal bleeding, rectal pain, urgency, frequency, so almost one in 10 having problems with that. And that's a 
you know, fairly significant group of people, and that's just prostate cancer. Um, and yet we see very, very few of them. Only a handful of our local urology groups um, are aware of it and will treat the bladder side of things. But if you look at the proctopathy side, the, the ones that affect the bowel uh, and the rectal bleeding and rectal pain, things like that, very, very few of them actually get to us. So that's kind of what prompted, the, the, in my opinion, the need for this discussion is because trying to help our physician colleagues in the community understand that this is not uh, it's not the it's not the bag that you can go get into it's for not alternative yeah, therapy. Yeah, it, and it's kind of viewed as that. Um, but um, it, the, the literature has been reviewed. There's some high level quality studies that came out of South Carolina, for example, that have been reviewed by the Cochrane Library that agreed that yes, the the literature is strong enough as it relates to this particular application that we would recommend using it. And then if you look at the GI publications, for example, and they put out algorithms here recently, it includes hyperbaric medicine if it's available to you, to include it at a point that's equal or even in some cases in front of argon plasma coagulation, which is using a laser to actually zap areas that are bleeding, which in and of itself causes scarring. So that's kind of the challenge that we're facing here as it relates to our cancer folks is you can talk about the, the you, you mentioned the lady that's having breast reconstruction, for example, and, and how many of them have a challenge with post-op infection or, or the wound is having a hard time coming back together. So it's, can you talk about some of the evidence behind the side as it relates to the cancer patient and radiation injuries that typically come two and a half, three years after they've had their treatment? Well, I think the, the good news is that we're getting better at treating cancers and the survival of patients with a wide variety of cancers has become much, much better over the course of time. Additionally, about 60% of cancer treatment protocols now have radiation as part of that protocol. So more patients are getting radiation and more patients are living longer because we're becoming better at curing these cancers. And once you have that window of opportunity to get a delayed effect of radiation, which is a positive thing, you have to look at how that delayed effect of radiation impacts on quality of life. And so the quality of life issue is very important because you have someone who no longer has prostate cancer or no longer has cervical cancer, but now has the problem of having to go to the bathroom with urgency three or four times an hour sometimes, or imagine not being able to get on a plane because you have to spend every 15, 20 minutes in the bathroom. And so it really limits what you can do, where you can go, uh, how you can work. And more of our younger cancer patients are surviving, so they're still working. They're in the population that is not housebound or not able to stay at home. And so we have to think of what we can do to help them to regain a quality of life that they had prior to all of this cancer um, therapy. And one of those things uh, would be hyperbaric oxygen therapy because radiation um, kills cancer cells, but it also damages the normal healthy tissue surrounding that cancer. And as good as we are at killing cancer, we're also pretty good at killing healthy tissue surrounding that area. And so the damage that's done to that healthy tissue uh, becomes more and more evident as time goes on. And so sometimes 10, 15, even 20 years after your radiation, you start having late effects 
And one of the more common ones, as you described, were um, bleeding from your bladder uh, for prostate cancer mm -hmm. or the treatment of cervical cancer, likewise. And then, of course, uh, for rectal cancers, and they have uh, proctopathy, which is rectal bleeding or, or pain on uh, defecation. And so these people need something that will hopefully permanently reverse the effect of the radiation. And the radiation has basically depleted uh, the vascular bed of these uh, organs and has depleted the stem cells and has caused a lot of fibrosis, uh, which is scarring. Mm -hmm. And if you can reverse that without burning the organ, either through um, laser therapy or through chemical cautery, right. you can uh, help these patients become um, much, have a much better quality of life. So a treatment, for example, so someone that's listening that's actually experiencing a lot of this and really has a diminished quality of life going on, young, what would a typical treatment be? I mean, are they in for eight months worth of treatment and no. have to come in every week? Or tell me what's what no, that it is. Actually, it actually mirrors what we expect for them from them when they go to get radiation. So radiation is a fractionated treatment. You get one a day for five days a week for six to eight weeks. And that's just about the same thing that happens with hyperbaric therapy. It's about two hours a day, five days a week for about eight weeks. And so the... Time obligation um, is about the same as the one that we ask them to do when we're trying to cure their cancer. And now we're asking them to take the same amount of time out of their lives um, to help them get back to a more n normal life. And is that basically once I'm done, I'm done? Pretty much. If you get uh, the appropriate response that 80% of patients will have um, significant improvement to complete resolution, then it seems to be enduring. And most people do not need a second course of hyperbaric therapy. So what, what is this going to set me back? How much does this cost? And that was one of the things I was going to talk about is because it, it does get paid for by Medicare, Medicaid, third-party insurers, all commercial um, insurers, as it relates to treating a patient who's coming in for soft tissue injury related to previous radiation therapy, it will be approved for, the, for that. So basically what it will cost you is really dependent on your plan. Um, what is your office obligation when you go to see a specialist, for example? Because those will come into play, and that's what will determine how much it will cost you. If you use Medicare, which is the, um, I think, the price point that we can look at cost across all states mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. Um, a course of hyperbaric therapy costs about what a course of radiation costs. And I don't know what that it's, is. It's probably, it for a Medicare patient, uh, probably in the range of $25,000 for about 40 treatments. Okay. We're talking about providing a, a treatment modality for a patient who is likely to have years, if not decades, left of what could be a good quality of life remaining, or they could be suffering, as Helen described, the, the person with proctopathy. We've, we've had a guy on the Top Docs radio show who was one of those patients. Couldn't travel to see his family, couldn't travel to uh, go on trips that he was 
would have been otherwise able to do for that very reason that he described. Um, and so that's the reason why I mentioned that contrast is because if from the from our providers in the in the community who want to diligently spend healthcare dollars, um, but but. The reason why I illustrate that is because these are patients that are going to live a long time, and if the patient's life is clearly disrupted, they're coming back every few weeks or every few months, and they're saying, "Doctor, this is this is this is a bummer. I'm, I, I can't I can't do anything because of this problem." And the other solutions that are aimed at symptom mitigation rather than resolution of the actual underlying cause aren't doing the trick for them. That's a person who's going to be dealing with that for years. Well, why is this actually considered to be such alternative, wacky treatment? I mean, you mentioned the athletes, mm-hmm. and it seems like the the more people that are doing these kind of outlier activities, such I mean, it makes perfect sense that athletes would be using this, especially for certain types of injuries. But why is this considered? Why why are you having such a hard time selling this within the physician community? I think the original suspicious. Um, nature of um, hyperbaric therapy or the suspicious view of uh, conventional medical societies towards hyperbaric oxygen therapy started in the 70s when um, a lot of of physicians were using hyperbaric oxygen therapy for every indication, for anything. And because the studies were not very robust that they were publishing – For example, um, multiple sclerosis, um, a remitting disease. You get better, you get worse, you get better. And the logic behind using hyperbaric therapy was fairly good, but it was very difficult to actually say whether or not the patient improved over the course of time with hyperbaric therapy. And so we've been painted with this brush of if there's... Um, some disease that we can't fix, let's try hyperbaric therapy. And so that's kind of a last sort resort. Of last resort. And because of all the skepticism that was generated in the 70s, it, was, uh, it has been a challenge in traditional medical schools and traditional medical training to incorporate hyperbaric therapy for what is now a much more robust um, set of uh, studies that say, yes, this actually does work in these instances. Yeah, good level one studies. Good level one studies. And so um, it's been an uphill battle because it's very hard to remove that historical context. And the other part is that you don't seem to be doing anything. <laughs> it's oxygen. You're, you're, you, you have the patient like, comes Can I go in, buy this? Yeah, right. seriously. The, the patient goes into the hyperbaric chamber and watches TV for two hours. And that concept of not – because it's a colorless gas, nothing is happening to you. I think it would be much more popular if it was neon pink. Or if it hurt. You know, or if something <laughs> – Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't I mean, do anything. Does it hurt? It, make, no, it doesn't no, make me feel sick. Do, doesn't, you know, it, you go in and then you go home. Right. And so you, you get better. And pers- I still have crow's feet. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and the perception is that you really – nothing is happening. And yet, uh, on a scientific basis, a lot of things are happening because this drug is being administered under pressure for two hours. But it's a concept that's sometimes hard to wrap your head around. 
And the other side of that, you know, another layer of that is we, we've talked about it. There, there are, for example, there's chiropractor offices and, and other places around the communities that offer the soft-sided chamber that give you room air under about 10 feet equivalent of, of pressure. And people with autism, people with uh, cerebral palsy, um, you name it, um, will take their children there or just to go in just like we talked about earlier for vitality. Um, if you have some money, you can get in the chamber and it gets, it gets lumped in because the, it's basically mild hyperbaric medicine is the same concept. It's delivering a gas under pressure in a, in a chamber. It's a hyperbaric environment. It's just very different in terms of its actual physiologic effects and the other side of that is is we are very guarded about what we will treat you for with relation to hyperbaric medicine versus, oh, if you got a credit card, oh, you can get in my chamber. Um, it's, it's radically different. I mean, there is actually, for a, an evidence-driven practice, there are many people that come that we believe, well, you might, you, this problem that you have might possibly benefit from hyperbaric medicine, but we can't treat you. And so the training, so you mentioned there's, you know, vitality and chiropractic offices that are, you know, basically offering this oxygen therapy. Um, so if I am looking for this, first of all, what kind of training, what kind of questions should I be asking a doctor? Well, you, you want to find a physician. Um, first, you want to make sure that the physician is present in the office during the entire time of the treatment, either in the office or in the facility. And you would like to have the uh, physician having been trained in hyperbaric therapy. Um, we would always love to have uh, physicians who are board certified in hyperbaric uh, therapy, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Now you say that as though medicine. it doesn't happen that often? or Well, what? unfortunately... It, it was made to be challenging. Uh, they, um, the American um, Board of Preventative Medicine and the American Board of Emergency Medicine closed the practice track um, no, a number of years ago. And so there are under 600 board cert subspecialty certified hyperbaric physicians in the country. So, And do we have one in our presence? We do. Wow. <laughs> we have a couple in our practice. Uh, it's, it's a challenge um, to find someone who's been, um, who, who was taken a fellowship and sat for the subspecialty board. But if you go and see someone, ask them, you know, have you taken a, a, an introductory course in hyperbaric oxygen therapy? And um, are you going to be there uh, during my treatment? Because if there are complications, a physician needs to be present uh, to be able to take care of them. It's a very safe therapy, much like scuba diving. You know, you always hear about the accidents, but millions of people scuba dive and very few actually have um, adverse consequences. So I think that would be one of the two things is to make sure that they've been trained and that they are going to be there. The and other so thing I would, I would add to that is if you're going to a hospital-based program, a hospital-affiliated program, in most cases you're going to get that. Um, in most cases, um, and you're going to avoid the mild hyperbaric things. So you want to ask, am I getting 100% oxygen? That's a very important question because if you're getting real hyperbaric medicine, it's 100% O2 delivered, not room air or not oxygen by a cannula. Um, so, you know, if you go to what is a wound program, 
um, a wound practice where that's their specialty is treating chronic wounding and they happen to have hyperbaric medicine therapy as part of that, it's very likely, particularly if it's UHMS accredited, it will be. Um, not every program is UHMS accredited. That's an optional thing that they can do to give themselves a greater level of credibility and a greater yeah. level of accountability. But those are things that if you look for, is it hospital affiliated? Ours is not a hospital affiliated program, but we are UHMS accredited and very much evidence driven and you're getting 100% O2 delivered in our chambers. There is another option, uh, which is not exactly subspecialty certification. However, uh, there is a certificate of added qualification that is offered by uh, both the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society and the American um, Board of Wound Management, which is an exam uh, that, it, that a physician can take to demonstrate competency in hyperbaric therapy. And I think that's another thing to say, to ask if you're, do you have a CAQ? Do you have a certificate of added uh, qualification? Mm -hmm. Because that uh, demonstrates that they are serious about what they're doing, that they are practicing hyperbaric therapy um, enough and with um, enough passion to actually sit for another exam. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting with the baby boomers kind of moving into this window and all these chronic diseases. I mean, it seems like it would be an application that would work for, you know, brain therapies. And, and I mean, is there any any movement five years from now or even testing going on in neurological, you know, neurological Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that? There is quite a bit of research that is going on in stroke and traumatic brain injury. Um, and in Parkinson's um, disease, but most of it is being done overseas. It's very challenging in the United States to do uh, f controlled or double-blinded controlled trials um, for a drug that is relatively inexpensive and doesn't have a manufacturer. Yeah, there's not billions to be made selling O2. <laughs> it's like exercise. Yeah. Exactly. So if we <laughs> right. get this passed, if this turns right. out to be an indication the the increase in terms of the revenue that would come from that it, it's different than you know on the medication side we get this medication passed billions can be made right. so we want to pass it we want mm -hmm. to do all the studies we need right. to do but that sounds awfully cynical <laughs> it's it's an unfortunate fact but overseas um, especially in the Middle East in Turkey in Israel um, in China um, they are doing clinical trials um, on stroke patients, for example, which the at least the preliminary work has been very promising. Now, whether or not it will um, be reproducible in larger trials, we'll just have to wait and see. The science seems to make sense. If you have I mean, an just area... Based just, on what you've right, said this morning, the science right. makes sense. The science seems to make sense. The question um, that we have to answer is, when do you give this drug, hyperbaric oxygen? Do you give it early in the course of a stroke? Do you give it after the stroke is completed? Um, can you give it as long as a year or two years after the stroke has completed? And will there be any beneficial effect? I think that the um, opportunities, especially in these neurologic disorders, looks very exciting, but the jury is out at the moment. We have to wait and see what the research will show. So in the meantime, just keep exercising and eating right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And if you're, if you happen to be a physician or, or, uh, 
know one close to you that uh, that wants to get some information, clearly link up with us um, because we will be more than happy to supply you with the studies, uh, the quality studies that would be worth reviewing that would help you be able to make this available to your patients. If nothing else, to be able to educate your patients to the fact that it is here, it is available, and it is covered by most insurance uh, providers, whether they may be the government-funded or, or commercial insurance plans, will will provide for that. So that's one of our hopes here is to illuminate what is it doing, uh, illuminate the fact that there is a good body of evidence behind it, and then be able to get patients who could benefit from it, at least the ability to choose for themselves. Because as we talked about before, I mean, 40 to 80 times that they're going to treat, or for, sorry, 20 to 40 times that they're going to treat in a chamber over the course of a few weeks. For many people, I can't do that for whatever reason. Logistically, it just won't work for me. And, and that's a quality of life choice that they can make. And at least that's a choice that they have in their, and they have the power to choose for themselves. And that's what I'm hoping for. Well, I think the take-home message is that especially in those patients with radiation um, injury, delayed effects of radiation after cancer therapy, the impact that hyperbaric therapy can have on your quality of life is actually life-changing. Yeah. And I think sometimes um, we don't pay enough attention as physicians to the quality of life of patients after we finish treating them. You're a survivor. We're, you're a survivor. What are you crying about? Yeah. Well, surviving can be really <laughs> hell. <laughs> That's right. And so I think we have to be a bit more open in addressing the complications and looking um, to other ways or more or different ways of addressing these complications. I cannot believe how fast this hour has flown I know, I'm just sitting here by. going, wow. <laughs> I was going to try to get her back to her office quickly, and I kept her here for the full hour. So, Helen, I want to say thank you very much for My taking pleasure. some time this morning to share some information about this treatment modality that is available in our community in, in just about every hospital you can, you can go to here within and without the perimeter around Atlanta. So if you are somebody that's dealing with late effects of radiation or one of your loved ones is, or if you're a provider that may be taking care of some of these patients, Get yourself educated about it. Contact us if you need to. We can get you the, the good, correct, accurate information that will help you make a better choice as to whether it's right for you or your patients. Diana Keo, thanks for taking some time to uh, sit in on the mic it's, again today. It's become a bad habit for me to be That's here. right. Yeah, ribbon off on y'all. <laughs> and to all the folks who took the time to check us out today, very much appreciated um, for you to do that. And please... Turn around and share it on your social media sites. You never know if you uh, might end up putting that in the hands of somebody whose life can be changed by this information. And uh, we appreciate that in advance. So make sure you make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewick.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.